Welcome back to the Bishop's Hour. I'm Joyce Coronel. And I'm Jennifer Ellis. As we prepare to celebrate Christmas in the next few days, we thought it would be good to spend some time unpacking the Incarnation. Our hope is that it will allow you to experience more deeply the amazing gift we contemplate at Christmas. To help us today is Will Wright. He's a teacher at St. John Paul II High School in Avondale, an instructor with Keno Catechetical Institute, and founder, is that right, of Good Distinctions? Yeah. Yeah, it's a really cool platform. We'll, we'll let you plug that a little bit later, too. So, Will, welcome to the Bishop's Hour. Thank you. Thank, it's uh, wonderful to be back. We're glad you're here. So let's start by getting an update on you. How are you doing? And maybe you could tell us about your school year, good distinctions, that sort of thing. Things are going well. Uh, My family just moved in November from one part of the city to another. So still unpacking boxes every day, but we're uh, we're enjoying it. We're a lot closer to work and school and uh, the parish. And so that's been very nice. Good distinctions is going well. I started earlier in the year. And uh, for those who are listening who don't know what it is, basically... If I summarize it, it's reigniting good conversation, finding the best distinctions, and inspiring others to do the same. And so in a world that's very polarized towards these extremes, we're trying to find what is the truth. And usually the truth is somewhere in the middle. So anyone who wants to check that out, it's it's definitely Catholic, but I think even non-Catholics will appreciate the approach. And that's at gooddistinctions.com. And uh, I've also been working a lot recently with Dr. Eric Westby with the Institute of Catholic Theology. And uh, have a, I'm teaching an undergraduate course for the first time this coming spring semester with the ICT on Catholic social teaching. Uh, so if people want more information on that, they can just go to ictphx.com slash apply. Wow. You've got a lot going on. No kidding. Got to be busy or it's going to be boring. <laughs> well, just kidding. Take some time for prayer, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you have a young family, too. I do, yeah. So. Two-year-old and a six-year-old. Yeah, you've got you've got your hands full for so sure. So while you're unpacking boxes, they're putting things back in and moving things around. <laughs> they're actually very helpful. Are they? they? Uh, they're good at picking up. They're also good at wrecking everything, but <laughs> a little bit of both. Nice balance. That's a good distinction. <laughs> <laughs> well, so let's let's jump into talking about the incarnation. The Lord coming as a baby to a virgin was foretold in the Old Testament. What are some of those passages and how might they have been received by the people living during that time? St. Augustine says that the New Testament is hidden in the Old and that the Old is revealed in the New. So there's all kinds of different passages that we could use, uh, but I want to start with Isaiah seven fourteen. It says this, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. Now, that's strange because virgins don't normally conceive children. So that's from the outset a bit strange. But the original Hebrew of the passage is actually a little bit more ambiguous. The word Alma that's used uh, refers to just a a young woman, a marriageable woman. And it's from the Greek translation Parthenos, which we get the word virgin in English. Um, So there's really a – Catholic theology sees a dual fulfillment in this passage – The immediate fulfillment was that the house of David, uh, the ruling class, the ruling house, was facing imminent destruction in 732 BC, and Isaiah prophesies that God will save them from destruction. So that's the immediate fulfillment. But the later fulfillment is actually made crystal clear a couple chapters later in Isaiah 9, 6. And it says this, for a child is born to us, a son is given to us, and the government is upon his shoulder. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, God the Mighty, the Father of the World to Come, the Prince of Peace. So this is clearly not an immediate fulfillment. This is something that's coming later. And Isaiah is saying that the Messiah to come will be God himself in some miraculous way. And we even hear where the child will be born in Micah 5.2. says this, And thou, Bethlehem, Ephrata, art a little one among the nation, the thousands of Judah. Out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be the ruler in Israel. And his, his going forth is from the beginning, from the days of eternity. So again, very clear that this Messiah is, is God, and he'll be born of a virgin and in the town of Bethlehem which we see very clearly in Jesus. And so some people might say, well, you know, it's kind of convenient that he's born in Bethlehem. And uh, when we look at that, we shouldn't say that that's contrived in any way. The reality is that he was born in Bethlehem because of the census. That wasn't where Jesus' hometown is. His hometown is Nazareth. So why is he in Bethlehem? Well, that's historical realities beyond um, even what Mary and Joseph are foreseeing. And it's not like you can go back in time and say, oops, I was born in the wrong city. Let's, let's, let's pick a different location. So all of these Old Testament passages, and there, there's many more, all converge on this reality that the, the promised one of Israel will be of the house of David in the city of Bethlehem, born of a virgin, and he will be the ruler. He'll be the, the king to come. So how do these scriptures speak to us today? Well, I... Obviously, this is sort of a focal point uh, for us as we're reading the Old Testament. We can sort of enter into that reality that Israel is looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And that's why we call this time before Christmas Advent, because we recognize that coming, but then also the coming of Christ to us today, and then the second coming. So there's multiple levels. And so I think that's actually the, the most important thing we can take from these passages is that sort of dual fulfillment idea is that you can have two things that are true at the same time, though not in the exact same way. Obviously, the law of non-contradiction says that two things cannot be true at the same time in the same way. And a lot of people today will look at something and go, well, it's this. And then someone else will say, no, it's this. And what I often try to do in good distinctions and what I think we should all be trying to do is say, can those both be true simultaneously? Is there a way in which they're both true, perhaps in a different way, one more imminent and one later? So uh, I think practically that's something we can look at, especially when we're having disagreements, especially theological disagreements with folks. Christmas is coming up. People come together at the family table from different places and might be disagreeing. So being able to take a breath and say, can these things be true, at the same time, perhaps in a different way. It's interesting, too, as I was listening to you, it's like, yeah, I mean, what are the odds? So, like, all these things are foretold in Scripture, and then, wow, how is it that, okay, yes, Mary and Joseph have to travel to this other place? Like, there are no coincidences. No. (laughs) (laughs) And so, and here it is, all came together to, you know, no room at the end, born in a stable, in a manger. I mean, like, just... It's mind-blowing when you kind of think through all of the little hints to who Jesus is that mm-hmm. were sprinkled out throughout Scripture and then are in the very words of the places where he is and was. 
So now moving to the, the New Testament, in John 1, verse 1, 14, and the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Let's talk about the fact that the second person of the Trinity, who always existed, changed his very nature. So there's a lot to say here. Um, <laughs> and I guess I'll, I'll just say he didn't, he didn't change his nature as God. So in Jesus, we see one person with two natures, two complete natures, one human, one divine. And the Council of Chalcedon helps us understand this. I have a few quotes here to help us. So the first one says, we confess that in these latter times, I should mention, by the way, these are magisterial documents from church councils that are basically as close to dogmatic declarations as we can get. So we can take these at face value. So it says, we confess that in these later, latter times, the only begotten Son of God appeared in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of natures not having been taken away by the union. Of course, it's talking about the union, the hypostatic union of Jesus, who is the second person of the Trinity, God himself, the word of God made flesh. One person, capital P, two natures. Council of Chalcedon goes on to say, We confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is not parted or divided into two persons, but is the one and the same only begotten Son and Word of God. So we see two natures, one person, one being subsisting in two natures. So obviously everyone listening understands this completely. It's totally <laughs> accessible. When I was getting my master's in theology and I was reading um, some of the documents of Cyril of Alexandria especially, and I'm trying to understand Christology and the person of Jesus, it still hurts my brain. I, I can't wrap my head around it. So a lot of these things are absolutely a mystery, not something that God has sort of shrouded in the way that we can't understand it. He's revealed quite a bit. But a lot of these things, we have to understand what's true so that we can understand what isn't true when it comes up. The church sort of often brings up these heresies uh, and then has to sort of define. And that's exactly what Chalcedon's doing. It's defining this is what's appropriate. And so from that, when we hear something, we're like, that doesn't quite match up. We can say, okay, well, that must be erroneous. But this, this, this union in a, the person, it's not something that's in the divine nature. Right? When we talk about natures, this is scholastic language like St. Thomas Aquinas would have used. The nature of something is what it is, its essence. So the person of Jesus Christ in his humanity, that union doesn't take place in the divinity. It doesn't take place in the Godhead, right, in the Trinity. Um, and it, neither does it take place accidentally, sort of just put on like a characteristic. It's something that this union of God and man took place in the person of the word of God. So we don't say that the father became flesh. We don't say that the Holy Spirit became flesh. So it's the person of the word of God. And it's not in his divine nature. And it's not something just sort of added on. This union began. It began in time. And so right there we can say, okay, this isn't something that's part of God from the beginning because God is timeless. He made time. It, and we can say that that union was created. Well, immediately our, our warning bells should go off and say, wait, Jesus was created. What, what, what do you mean? I thought we say in the creed every week that the Son of God was begotten, not made. 
Yes, right. So that's that's the point. But Jesus in his humanity, his humanity was created. It was made. It was furnished from the flesh of Mary. And so the divine nature is united to the human nature of Jesus. It's not assumed. Um, so we could say that the second person of the Trinity assumed human nature. We don't say that the human person of Jesus assumed divinity. Uh, I hear that a lot. Sometimes people will point to the baptism of Jesus and say that the descending of the Holy Spirit was when Jesus sort of took on divinity. And that's, that's wrong. That's heretical nonsense. So from the beginning, from the conception of Jesus in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary, from the very beginning of his existence as a human, Jesus is fully God and fully man. Because uh, that's, that's exactly what the angel Gabriel told her, right? Right. I mean, you're going to bear the Son of God, and his, you'll name him Jesus means God saves. So it, to give us a little bit of context, because as you mentioned, the church will often hold these councils because of heresy, and then those heresies, even though the councils put them down, they creep up, just as you indicated just now. People will tend to emphasize one nature over the other, the humanity of Christ, right, or the divinity at the expense of one or the other. But when was the Council of Chalcedon? Just so that the people have some context, this didn't happen a hundred years ago. This happened no, the, the 500s, five hundreds, if I remember right. I didn't write the date down. I always get it confused. I know it was after Ephesus, which was in four fifty one, uh, and I want to say it was the early five hundreds. But I think you're right. But it just yeah, it's I probably think right. Just like early on, this right, isn't very this early. isn't a, this is like early church fathers. So in taking on our humanity, you know, when Jesus does that. What does that say about our human dignity, and what does that call us to? Well, we share in God's nature by virtue of our creation. We're made in the image and likeness of God. Um, he made us male and female with dignity. But then when Jesus comes and he restores this ability of us to be a son or daughter of the Father through baptism, it's that, that reality is elevated. It's strengthened to the point that we're we're being set on a trajectory. We're being, we're given a revelation that heaven is our destination. That's not something we can know naturally. God had to reveal that to us. And through sonship, through daughtership, through baptism, that's what we're ordered towards is union with God. St. John of Damascus uses this image of a red, of an iron, a fire poker that's put into the fire and if you leave it long enough, it starts to glow red and it becomes like fire. And in many ways, that's like us. Our, our humanity enters into union with the divinity and we become like God. And so this is where we get, like in John three sixteen, probably the most famous Bible verse in the world. For God so loved the world as to give his only begotten son that whosoever believe in him may not perish, but may have life everlasting. And Pope St. Leo the Great actually in a Christmas sermon in the fifth century said this. He said, Christian, remember your dignity. And now that you share in God's own nature, do not return by sin to your former base condition. Bear in mind who is your head and of whose body you are a member. Do not forget that you have been rescued from the power of darkness and brought into the light of God's kingdom. Through the sacrament of baptism, you have become a temple of the Holy Spirit. Do not drive away so great a guest by evil conduct and become again a slave to the devil, for your liberty was bought by the blood of Christ. And I love that passage. It's in Liturgy of the Hours for Christmas because it shows us that reality of our dignity and the reality of baptism drawing us up into the sonship of Christ to share in 
eventually union and communion with God for all eternity. So did Jesus' humanity end when his time on earth ended? No. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so can we talk about that? <laughs> sure, sure. So um, when Jesus... When Jesus Christ is fully God, he's fully man, he dies on the cross, and that death is a true death. The body and soul, the human body, human soul of Christ is separated. And when it's restored, this is the resurrection. And Jesus is still the only person in human history to resurrect by his own power. Jesus brought plenty of people back from the dead. The apostles did the same. Uh, But Jesus is restored to life by his own divine power. And the divinity and humanity, again, that union, that hypostatic union in the person of the word is so strong, so inseparable that it didn't end. This is why after 40 days, after the resurrection, we see Jesus ascending into heaven in his body, blood, soul, and divinity, everything, all of it. And so he is in heaven, wherever that is. We don't know. That's a mystery. Probably some other dimension if I'm having to guess. But At any rate, he's there with a human body and soul, with a divine nature, um, intellect and will, divine intellect and will, human intellect and will, body, soul, all of it, uh, along with our Blessed Mother and probably a few other people that we can extrapolate from Scripture. Just that by itself kind of blows my mind. Yeah. Because, I mean, if if I'm hearing you right, there was a time when Jesus in his divine nature existed in heaven without his human body. See, this is where is it that, gets really complicated. Maybe I'm going down quite, a heresy not road. Not quite, because like, <laughs> Jesus, the Son of God, is a divine person, but Jesus is human. Right? And so Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. There was a time when he began. He, his human nature was created. And so before that, There was no hypostatic union. Before that, there was no human Jesus. There was the divine person of the Son of God, the eternal word. Now, that person didn't change, and his divinity did not change. He's always the unbegotten or the only begotten Son of God. But when he assumed humanity, he didn't, and that was in time. He assumed humanity in time. That didn't stop. So you can think about it. If God is eternal in terms of like, no temporality, no beginning, no end, always existing. The Son of God is eternally existing. Jesus, however, like us, has a start point and then proceeds forward in time forever. That that just blows my mind, actually. It gives us a lot of hope, doesn't it? (laughs) Yes. I mean, it really really gives you so much hope because you realize what— what Jesus did in in taking on our humanity and assuming our humanity and becoming one of us, like he gets it. He he understands mm-hmm. anxiety and fear and, and pain and being hungry and being cold and sick and all the things. He understands joy. All of those things I think are – that's very consoling to people to know that God understands us because really every human relationship – with another person is is finite. And so even if you, quote, unquote, find your soulmate, which I never like that term, but you know what I'm saying, like your yeah. bestie, is really not going to completely understand you, completely get you the way God does, right? That's just like who he is, and yet he's one of us. That's, that's just mind-blowing. So it's kind of incredible that 
you know, he could have come anyway. He could have sent a lightning bolt, but he chose the humble way. He chose to come and be born of the Virgin Mary and to be just completely dependent on Mary and Joseph. So what does that mean for us? Well, I, I want to go back to where he was born. He was born in the city of Bethlehem. And in Hebrew, Bethlehem means city of bread. So already that's a little strange uh, that you think that the Son of God, who we know eventually will give us his very flesh on the cross and his blood, will then come to us Eucharistically until the end of time in the Holy Mass, making those realities present again. But he was born in the city of bread, but that's not even weird enough because in Aramaic, Bethlehem means city of flesh. And so that's mind-blowing. <laughs> and then, not only that, as, as you were talking about earlier, Jennifer, it's like, okay, there's no room at the end, so we have to bring him to the stable. And he's put in a feeding trough in a manger uh, for these animals, showing us that he is to be food for the world. And we understand that on many levels, but especially with the Eucharist, that he is there until the end. And so even though he's in heaven bodily, uh, body, blood, soul, and divinity, he comes to us sacramentally under the veil of a sacrament, as the church says, so that we can receive him. There's nothing more humble than that. And there's perhaps the only thing that might be more humble than that is the incarnation itself, as you're saying, which is becoming totally dependent on Mary and Joseph under this threat from Herod, having to flee to Egypt, um, having to endure all of the human sufferings that we endure. The cross, and, and this is where we can kind of get into trouble, so I want to pick my words carefully, but the cross wasn't necessary. The cross was fitting. And St. Thomas Aquinas uses this language of fittingness. It was fitting that Jesus would go to the cross to show us the depths of God's love but one of my uh, dogmatic theology professors at Franciscan said, you know, Jesus could have stubbed his toe and that would have been enough to redeem mankind. Just the fact of the incarnation would have been enough to redeem mankind. And yet he didn't just sort of appear as a, as a full-grown man. We have all this time from the time he was a baby until he was 12 where we hear nothing. And then after that, we hear nothing until he's about 30 the hidden years of Jesus. And all during that time, what's he doing? Well, he's with Mary and Joseph in Nazareth. He's uh, working under St. Joseph to learn a trade. Uh, he's working hard. He's obedient. He's learning. And like you say, he's living this human life so that God who understands us and knows us better than we know ourselves can actually say that he not only sympathizes with our pain and suffering, but actually can empathize with it. He can enter into it in a different way, a fuller sense, if that's possible. I don't even know if that's possible, but it, it, at least for us, psychologically, it allows us to approach him in a very different way than even the Jewish people before the incarnation, where God was aloof. He was, he was distant. Now God is here and distant. He's transcendent and imminent. And so there's this fuller relationship that we get to have, especially through baptism becoming sons and daughters of the Father and co-heirs with Christ, brothers with Christ, receiving the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. I mean, God desires to be in union with us so much. That in itself is tremendously humbling the more we think about it. Yeah, wow. That's a lot, that's a lot for us to ponder. Definitely. Well, and just the, it just transforms the whole notion of suffering. 
I love how you describe that. So, so much to be grateful for at this time of year, right? Absolutely. Well, Will, thank you so much for joining us today. We hope you'll come back again when you're on a break from school. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And uh, I l- encourage our listeners to check you out over at Good Distinctions. There's a lot of great content there, podcast, new emails, lots of stuff to, to learn. So encourage our listeners to check check you out over there. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Will. We've had quite a show today. Really inspiring, right? Yes. I think of all that the mental health ministry has done in this first year. It's only been a year. And I think of how much has been done and the impact that has been made. So many people touched. And I think this is an issue that um, just every family I know can, can relate to. I think uh, for so long, there was such a stigma. I think in some ways there may still be for some folks. And so to bring all this out into the light, I remember reading once about how, you know, if you're if you're ill and you go to the doctor, but you hide your illness and you don't show them to the doctor, he, he can't he can't prescribe anything. He can't heal anything because he can't see what's happening. And so like how beautiful it is to bring our, our mental health issues out into the light of day and to receive that confident support, you know, from the church that, you know, that accompaniment and guidance toward resources so that we can find that healing, right? That healing in Christ. And just to have that in a Catholic context is just a, a real gift. Mm-hmm. And then Will, <laughs> talking about the incarnation, boy, I'd really like to be smart like some of our guests. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to take some of those courses from him. I think those uh, students, certainly at John Paul II High School, what a blessing to have a teacher like that, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just the, the depth of the, just, just really embracing our dignity and what the Lord has done for us. Not, I mean, in, in taking on our, our humanity and then dying for us. Like it's, I struggle to even understand it most days. Well, and I love that question that we asked him about, you know, what does that say about our human dignity that God, you know, God became man, that at a moment in time, he chose a woman born of man to bear him and and to live among us as one of us, to be able to really walk with us. And then he didn't have to do that, right? Mm-hmm. That's just, it, it's precious. And I think what a, what a blessing how God respects our freedom, and but he wants to walk with us, right? He doesn't want to just do these things remotely, but actually be with us and be in the moment with us. It's incredible. It is incredible. <laughs>